The 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards Narrated by Miranda and Ryan Johnson Part 3 A week had not gone by when I received a letter from the secretary of the East Anglin Railway Company, requesting the favor of my attendance at a special board meeting, not then many days distant. No reasons were alleged and no apologies offered for this demand upon my time. But they had heard it was clear of my inquiries anent the missing director, and had a mind to put me through some sort of official examination upon the subject. Being still a guest at Dumbledon Hall, I had to go up to London for the purpose, and Jonathan Jelf accompanied me. I found the direction of the Great East Anglin Line represented by a party of some twelve or fourteen gentlemen seated in a solemn conclave round a huge green blaze table in a gloomy boardroom adjoining the London terminus. Being courteously received by the chairman, who at once began by saying that certain statements of mine respecting Mr. Juan Dwerhouse had come to the knowledge of the direction, and that they in consequence desired to confer with me on those points. We were placed at the table, and the inquiry proceeded in due form. I was first asked if I knew Mr. John Dwerhouse, how long I had been acquainted with him, and whether I could identify him at sight. I was then asked when I had seen him last, to which I replied, on the 4th of this present month, December, 1856. Then came the inquiry of where I had seen him on that fourth day of December, to which I replied that I had met him in a first-class compartment of the 415 Down Express, that he had gotten in just as the train was leaving the London terminus, and that he alighted to Blackwater Station. The chairman then inquired whether I had any communication with my fellow traveler, whereupon I related, as nearly as I could remember it, the bulk and substance of Mr. John Dwerhouse's diffuse information respecting the new branch line. To all this the board listened with profound attention, while the chairman presided and the secretary took notes. I then produced a cigar case. It was passed from hand to hand and recognized by all. There was not a man present who did not remember that plain cigar case with its silver monogram, or to whom it seemed anything less than entirely corroborative of my evidence. When at length I had told all that I had to tell, the chairman whispered something to the secretary, the secretary touched a silver handbell, and the guard, Benjamin Somers, was ushered into the room. He was then examined as carefully as myself. He declared that he knew Mr. John Dwerhouse perfectly well, and that he could not be mistaken in him, that he remembered going down with the 415 Express on the afternoon in question, that he remembered me, and that there being one or two empty first-class compartments on this special afternoon, he had, in compliance with my request, placed me in a carriage by myself. He was positive that I remained alone in that compartment all the way from London to Clayborough. He was ready to take his oath that Mr. Dwerahouse was neither in that carriage with me nor in any compartment of the train. He remembered distinctly to have examined my ticket at Blackwater. He was certain that there was no one else at that time in the carriage. Could not have failed to observe the second person if there had been one, had that second person been Mr. John Dwerahouse should have quietly double-locked the door of the carriage and have at once given information to the Blackwater station master. So clear, so decisive, so ready was Somers with his testimony that the board looked fairly puzzled. You hear this person's statement, Mr. Langford, said the chairman. It contradicts yours in every particular. What have you to say in reply? I can only repeat what I have said before. I am quite as positive of the truth of my own assertions as Mr. Somers can be of the truth of his. You say that Mr. Dwerahouse alighted at Blackwater, and that he was in possession of a private key. 
Are you sure that he had not alighted by means of that key before the guard came around for the tickets? I am quite positive that he did not leave the carriage till the train had fairly entered the station, and the other Blackwater passengers alighted. I even saw that he was met there by a friend. Indeed! Did you see that person distinctly? Quite distinctly. Can you describe his appearance? I think so. He was short and very slight, sandy-haired, with a bushy mustache and beard, and he wore a closely fitting suit of gray tweed. His age I should take to be about thirty-eight or forty. Did Mr. Dwerrhouse leave the station in this person's company? I cannot tell. I saw them walking down the platform, and then I saw them standing aside under a gas jet, talking earnestly. After that I lost sight of them quite suddenly, and just then my train went on, and I with it. The chairman and secretary conferred together in an undertone. The directors whispered to each other. One or two looked suspiciously at the guard. I could see that my evidence remained unshaken, and that, like myself, they suspected some complicity between the guard and the defaulter. How far did you conduct that 415 express on the day in question, Mr. Somers? asked the chairman. All throughout, sir, replied the guard, from London to Crampton. How was it that you were not relieved at Clayborough? I thought there was always a change of guards at Clayborough. There used to be, sir, till the new regulations came in force last summer. Since then the guards in charge of the express trains go the whole way through. The chairman turned to the secretary. I think it would be as well, he said, if we had the day book to refer upon this point. Again the secretary touched the silver handbell and desired the porter in attendance to summon Mr. Rakes. From a word or two dropped by another of the directors, I gathered that Mr. Rakes was one of the undersecretaries. He came, a small, slight, sandy-haired, keen-eyed man, with an eager, nervous manner, and a forest of light beard and mustache. He just showed himself at the door of the boardroom, and, being requested to bring a certain day-book from a certain shelf in a certain room, bowed and vanished. He was there such a moment, and the surprise of seeing him was so great and sudden, that it was not till the door had closed upon him that I found voice to speak. He was no sooner gone, however, than I sprang to my feet. "'That person,' I said, "'is the same who met Mr. Dwerhouse upon the platform at Blackwater.' There was a general movement of surprise. The chairman looked grave and somewhat agitated. "'Take care, Mr. Lankford,' he said. "'Take care what you say.' "'I'm as positive of his identity as of my own.' "'Do you consider the consequences of your words?' Do you consider that you are bringing a charge of the gravest character against one of the company's servants? I'm willing to be put upon my oath if necessary. The man who came to that door a minute since is the same who I saw talking to Mr. Dwerhouse on the Blackwater platform. Were he twenty times the company's servant, I could say neither more nor less. The chairman turned again to the guard. Did you see Mr. Rakes on the train or on the platform? He asked. Somers shook his head. I am confident Mr. Rakes was not on the train, he said, and I certainly did not see him on the platform. The chairman turned next to the secretary. Mr. Rakes is in your office, Mr. Hunter, he said. Can you remember if he was absent on the fourth instant? I do not think he was, replied the secretary, but I am not prepared to speak positively. I have been away most afternoons myself lately, and Mr. Rakes might easily have absented himself if he had been disposed. At this moment, the undersecretary returned with the day-book under his arm. "'Be pleased to refer, Mr. Rakes,' said the chairman, "'to the entries of the fourth instant, and see what Benjamin Somers' duties were on that day.' 
Mr. Rakes threw open the cumbrous volume and ran a practiced eye and finger down some three or four successive columns of entries, stopping suddenly at the foot of a page. He then read aloud that Benjamin Somers had on that day conducted the 415 Express from London to Crampton. The chairman leaned forward in his seat, looked the undersecretary full in the face, and said, quite sharply and suddenly, Where were you, Mr. Rakes, on the same afternoon? I, sir? You, Mr. Rakes, where were you on the afternoon and evening of the fourth of the present month? Here, sir, in Mr. Hunter's office. Where else should I be? There was a dash of trepidation in the undersecretary's voice as he said this, but his look of surprise was natural enough. We have some reason for believing, Mr. Rakes, that you were absent that afternoon without leave. Was this the case? Certainly not, sir. I have not had a day's holiday since September. Mr. Hunter will bear me out in this. Mr. Hunter repeated what he had previously said on the subject, but added that the clerks in the adjoining office would be certain to know, whereupon the senior clerk, a grave middle-aged person in green glasses, was summoned and interrogated. His testimony cleared the undersecretary at once. He declared that Mr. Rakes had in no instance, to his knowledge, been absent during the office hours since his return from the annual holiday in September. I was confounded. The chairman turned to me with a smile, in which a shade of covert annoyance was scarcely apparent. You hear, Mr. Langford? He said. I hear, sir, but my conviction remains unshaken. I fear, Mr. Langford, that your convictions are very insufficiently based, replied the chairman with a doubtful cough. I fear that you dream dreams and mistake them for actual occurrences. It is a dangerous habit of mind and might lead to dangerous results. Mr. Rakes here would have found himself in an unpleasant position had he not proved so satisfactorily an alibi. I was about to reply, but he gave me no time. I think, gentlemen, he went on to say, addressing the board, that we should be wasting time to push this inquiry further. Mr. Langford's evidence would seem to be of an equal value throughout. The testimony of Benjamin Somers disproves his first statement, and the testimony of the last witnesses disproves his second. I think we may conclude that Mr. Langford fell asleep in the train on the occasion of his journey to Clayborough and dreamt an unusually vivid and circumstantial dream, of which... However, we have now heard quite enough. There are few things more annoying than to find one's positive convictions met with incredulity. I could not help feeling impatience at the turn that affairs had taken. I was not proof against the civil sarcasm of the chairman's manner. Most intolerable of all, however, was the quiet smile lurking about the corners of Benjamin Somers' mouth, and the half-triumphant, half-malicious gleam in the eyes of the undersecretary. The man was evidently puzzled and somewhat alarmed. His look seemed furtively to interrogate me. Who was I? What did I want? Why had I come there to do him an ill turn with his employers? What was it to me whether or not he was absent without leave? Seeing all this, and perhaps more irritated by it than the thing deserved, I begged leave to detain the attention of the board for a moment longer. Jelf plucked me impatiently by the sleeve. Better let the thing drop, he whispered. The chairman's right enough. You dreamt it, and the less said now the better. I was not to be silenced, however, in this fashion. I had yet something to say, and I would say it. It was to this effect 
that dreams were not usually productive of tangible results, and that I requested to know in what way the chairman conceived I had evolved from my dream so substantial and well-made a delusion as a cigar case which I had the honor to place before him at the commencement of our interview. The cigar case, I admit, Mr. Langford, the chairman replied, is a very strong point in your evidence. It is your only strong point, however, and there is just a possibility that we may all be misled by a mere accidental resemblance. Will you permit me to see the case again? It is unlikely, I said as I handed it to him, that any other should bear precisely this monogram, and yet in all other particulars exactly similar. The chairman examined it for a moment in silence, then passed it to Mr. Hunter. Mr. Hunter turned it over and over and shook his head. This is no mere resemblance, he said. It is John Dwerhouse's cigar case to a certainty. I remember it perfectly. I have seen it a hundred times. I believe I may say the same, added the chairman. Yet, how account for the way in which Mr. Lankford asserts that it came into his possession? I can only repeat, I replied, that I found it on the floor of the carriage after Mr. Dwerhouse had alighted. It was in leaning out to look after him that I trod upon it, and it was in running after him for the purpose of restoring it that I saw or believed I saw Mr. Rake standing aside with him in earnest conversation. Again I felt Jonathan Jelf plucking at my sleeve. Look at Rake's, he whispered. Look at Rake's! I turned to where the undersecretary had been standing a moment before and saw him, white as death, with lips trembling and livid, stealing towards the door. To conceive a sudden, strange, and indefinite suspicion, to fling myself in his way, to take him by the shoulders, as if he were a child, and turn his craven face, perforce, towards the board, with me in the work of an instant. Look at him! I exclaimed. Look at his face! I ask no better witness to the truth of my words. The chairman's brow darkened. Mr. Rakes, he said sternly, if you know anything, you had better speak. Vainly trying to wrench himself from my grasp, the undersecretary stammered out an incoherent denial. Let me go, he said. I know nothing. You have no right to detain me. Let me go. Did you or did you not meet Mr. John Dwerhouse at Blackwater Station? The charge brought against you is either true or false. If true, you will do well to throw yourself upon the mercy of the board and make full confession of all that you know. The undersecretary wrung his hands in agony of helpless terror. I was away, he cried. I was two hundred miles away at the time. I know nothing about it. I have nothing to confess. I am innocent. I call God to witness. I am innocent. Two hundred miles away, echoed the chairman. What do you mean? I was in Devonshire. I had three weeks leave of absence. I appealed to Mr. Hunter. M Mr. Hunter knows I had three weeks leave of absence. I was in Devonshire all the time. I can prove. I, I was in Devonshire. Seeing him so abject, so incoherent, so wild with apprehension, the directors began to whisper gravely among themselves, while one got quietly up and called the porter to guard the door. What has your being in Devonshire to do with the matter? said the chairman. When were you in Devonshire? Mr. Rakes took his leave in September, said the secretary. About the time when Mr. Dwerhouse disappeared. I never even heard that he disappeared till I came back. That must remain to be proven, 
I shall at once put this matter in the hands of the police. In the meanwhile, Mr. Rakes, being myself a magistrate and used to deal with these cases, I advise you to offer no resistance, but to confess while confession may yet do you service. As for your accomplice... The frightened wretch fell upon his knees. I had no accomplice, he cried. Only have mercy upon me. Only spare my life, and I will confess all. I didn't mean to harm him. I didn't mean to hurt a hair of his head. Only have mercy upon me and let me go. The chairman rose in his place, pale and agitated. Good heavens, he exclaimed. What horrible mystery is this? What does it mean? As sure as there is a God in heaven, said Jonathan Jove. It means that a murder has been done. No, shrieked Rakes, still upon his knees and cowering like a beaten hound. Not murder. No jury that ever sat could bring it in murder. I, I thought I had only stunned him. I, I never meant to do more than stun him. Manslaughter, manslaughter, not murder. Overcome by the horror of his unexpected revelation, the chairman covered his face with his hand and for a moment or two remained silent. Miserable man, he said at length. You have betrayed yourself. You bade me confess. You urged me to throw myself upon the mercy of the board. You have confessed to a crime which no one suspected you of having committed, replied the chairman, and which this board has no power either to punish or forgive. All that I can do for you is to advise you to submit to the law, to plead guilty, and to conceal nothing. When did you do this deed? The guilty man rose to his feet and leaned heavily against the table. His answer came reluctantly, like the speech of one dreaming. Uh, on the 22nd of September. On the 22nd of September? I looked in Jonathan Joe's face, and he in mine. I felt my own paling with a strange sense of wonder and dread. I saw his blanch suddenly, even to the lips. Merciful heaven, he whispered. What was it, then, that you saw in the train? What was it that I saw in the train? That question remains unanswered to this day. I have never been able to reply to it. I only know that it bore the living likeness of the murdered man, whose body had been lying some ten weeks under a rough pile of branches and brambles and rotting leaves at the bottom of a deserted chalk pit about halfway between Blackwater and Mallingford. I know that it spoke and looked as that man spoke, and moved and looked in life, that I heard, or seemed to hear, things that related which I could never otherwise have learned, that I was guided, as it were, by that vision on the platform to the identification of the murderer, and that a passive instrument myself, I was destined, by means of these mysterious teachings, to bring about the ends of justice. For these things I have never been able to account. As for that matter of the cigar case, it proved on inquiry that the carriage in which I traveled down that afternoon to Clayborough had not been in use for several weeks, and was in point of fact the same in which poor John Dwerrehouse had performed his last journey. The case had doubtless been dropped by him, and had lain unnoticed till I found it. Upon the details of the murder I have no need to dwell. Those who desire more ample particulars may find them, and the written confession of Augustus Rakes, in the files of the Times for 1856. Enough that the undersecretary, knowing the history of the new line, and following the negotiations step by step through all its stages, determined to waylay Mr. Dwerhouse, 
rob him of the 75,000 pounds, and escape to America with his booty. In order to effect these ends, he obtained leave of absence a few days before the time appointed for the payment of the money, secured his passage across the Atlantic in a steamer advertised to start on the 23rd, provided himself with a heavily loaded life preserver, and went down to Blackwater to await the arrival of his victim. How he met him on the platform with a pretended message from the board, how he had offered to conduct him by a short cut across the fields to Mallingford, how, having brought him to a lonely place, he struck him down with a life preserver, and so killed him, and how, finding what he had done, he dragged the body to the verge of an out-of-the-way chalk pit, and there flung it in, and piled it over with branches and brambles, are facts still in the memories of those who, like the connoisseurs in De Quincey's famous essay, regard murder as a fine art. Strangely enough, the murderer, having done his work, was afraid to leave the country. He declared that he had not intended to take the director's life, but only to stun and rob him and that finding the blow had killed, he dare not fly for fear of drawing down suspicion upon his own head. As a mere robber, he would have been safe in the United States, but as a murderer, he would have inevitably have been pursued and given up to justice. So he forfeited his passage, returned to the office as usual at the end of his leave, and locked up his ill-gotten thousands to a more convenient opportunity. In the meanwhile, he had the satisfaction of finding that Mr. Dwerra House was universally believed to have absconded with the money. No one knew how or whither. Whether he meant to murder or not, however, Mr. Augustus Rakes paid the full penalty for his crime, and was hanged at the Old Bailey in the second week in January 1857. Those who desire to make his further acquaintance may see him any day, admirably done in wax, in the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussaud's exhibition in Baker Street. He is there to be found in the midst of a select society of ladies and gentlemen of atrocious memory, dressed in the close-cut tweed suit which he wore on the evening of the murder, and holding in his hand the identical life preserver for which he had committed it. This completes The 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards, narrated by Miranda and Ryan Johnson. End of Part 3 of 3. Thank you for listening.